0: Good morning! I tell you, I uh watching the weather outside and I don't know that I'd say it's winter yet, but we're slowly getting there. One of my favorite things is, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say one of my favorite things. One of the things that I enjoy is when it finally gets cold enough and we have a snow day. There's a little bit of ice on the ground and everyone stays home from work, except for all of the guys decide to go check the roads. And And always get in trouble for that, so I always try to come to work anyway, and I check the roads. But really, the real reason that I go out to check the roads is because deep inside of me, there is still a teenager. I may be 38 years old, but the teenager has never left. And I'm telling y'all, this parking lot covered with snow is a dream for doing donuts. (laughs) And so I, I think it was... I don't think it was last cold season, maybe it was the year before that, that I have a picture of uh, Lisa sitting on a trash can lid behind my pickup truck, and we're doing sledding around the parking lot out here. So that was a lot of fun. And I think it was that same time that after she got off and, and was safe that I decided that I would really like blow some smoke and do some really cool donuts. And so I got the truck all spooled up and there was smoke going in the air and snow flowing it was flying everywhere and and I was real proud of myself, you know, because I had done something that was so cool. And or <laughs> at least all the children think it's cool. And then I parked the truck and I got out and I thought something doesn't smell right, (laughs) like my truck doesn't usually smell that way, and I opened the hood, and it definitely smelled like a microwave had been running or something, there was like this burnt electrical smell, and I thought, I don't know, anyway, it turns out something about doing donuts in the parking lot made my alternator stop working, and when I got home, I did not get much sympathy from my wife, when I complained about having to change that thing out. She said, well, did you have anything to do with it breaking? And I said, well, I think it was going to break anyway. (laughs) But I sped up the process a little bit. Anyway, so I was out there, and I didn't get much sympathy as I was replacing the alternator, and I ordered a new one, got the new one on, and then it turns out that the new one that I had purchased also had issues, and so now I got to replace the alternator again after taking that one back. Now, I will give her credit for this. With the second alternator replacement I got a little more sympathy. Because that one wasn't my fault. That was someone else's fault and they had they had sold me a, a a bad alternator and so everyone can can empathize with that a little bit. Now, we're lucky to live in a world where someone can sell you a bad alternator and what do you do? Well you take it back to the store and you get a new one. So I wasn't happy about it, but I had some recourse. I could I could uh, get that get that fixed, and so I, I got a different alternator and 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 swapped them out, and and everything ended up being okay. But some of you have had situations where you were kind of wronged, and you didn't have recourse. I mean, can you imagine if there was only one company that sold alternators, and that just was what you had to deal with? Maybe they decided they didn't want to take refunds and, and that just, or give you a refund and it just was what it was and you could buy another one or, or go without. Um, maybe um, some people live in a country where bad businesses like that even um, have some kinds of government protections that protects them from being, uh, being challenged or having to take care of the consumer. You know, we think about situations like that and we certainly would not be okay with it. Deep down inside, we all have an innate sense, I think I might say, of what justice should look like. So when we do something silly and we suffer the consequences, like me in the parking lot, Um, We have no one to be mad at but ourselves, and there's a lot of situations in our lives where we just do silly things, and we end up paying the consequences, and it is what it is, but there's other situations where someone else has caused us wrong, someone else does something that causes us pain, and in those situations, we look to that third party, and we desire justice for them. There's some sort of payment that must be made when things are, are done wrong or when we're injured because of the actions or choices of another person. And the truth is, when justice isn't delivered, when we look at those who maybe should be failing and instead they seem to thrive, we start to question the higher powers around us. In fact, I often think, we start to question God. We look out at the world around us, and we see a lot of people living in sin. And really, there's a piece of us that thinks that they should suffer for it. We can all see times in our lives when we have made poor choices and we've been hurt because of it, and and that happens to others as well, but honestly, it doesn't really seem like it's a universal truth. It seems like there are people that live outside of God's way and outside of God's will, and to be honest, they appear to be living just fine. And yet, I stand up here every week, and I tell y'all how this is the better way. This is the better way. And we go to Bible class and we talk about this is the better way. But then we look out and it seems that we're kind of suffering at the same rate as the world. We still have cancer. We still have financial problems. We still suffer tragedy. We deal with mental illness and physical illness and relational problems. The truth is, sometimes it doesn't feel like the things among us are that different than the general population just out there in our culture. But it kind of gets worse than that, because not only are we not protected or maybe shielded in a way that we would like to be shielded, it seems like there's a lot of unbelievers that aren't just maintaining, they're actually getting ahead. And sometimes it just happens despite their sinfulness. They're just not being knocked back like we think that they should. But, but there's even other situations where we really, really wrestle because there's a lot of places where it seems that unrighteousness or sinfulness is being rewarded. And our righteous choices, choosing to live the way that the Bible lays out, is actually punished. And it seems like at times the scales of justice are, are turned inside out. They're upside down. The truth is it's not fair. And I think most of us feel like God should do something about it. Do you ever feel like God's not upholding his end of the bargain? Because the Israelites did, and it forms the basis of our fourth lesson from Malachi, this back and forth between them and God, and I want to read it. We're going to start in Malachi 2.17. It's what we opened our worship service with. The text says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed." So as a reminder, we are walking through the minor prophet Malachi. This is week four of a seven-week series. Israel has returned home from exile and they are back in the promised land and they're looking around and they're saying, hey, we thought that this was supposed to be something special and this hasn't turned out at all like we expected it to. And God steps into this discontented situation to their accusations against him and honestly provides them a response that they probably didn't deserve. We began with the first week as God stepping in at the very beginning of Malachi and laying the foundation for the whole book that I believe that it builds off of. God steps in and says, I have loved you, but the people question him. How have you loved us? And essentially God says, because you can look back at moments in history and see the times when I chose you. This, this unilateral covenant, this one-way choice that I have prioritized you and continued to work for you over and over again. And we talked about how that applies to us today, the, the wonder of being loved by a God who chooses us despite our brokenness. But they still had challenges against him because they didn't feel like he loved them. And he walks through so many of these situations that lays out all of the problems. And they continually point it back at God. And they say, God, you have this problem. And God says, no, I love you. You're the problem. Look at how you're acting. And so the second week we looked at how they despised his name. And they said, how have we despised your name? And he says, because you're offering me your second best with your sacrifices. You think that it's okay to give to the governors and the people around you all of this wonderful stuff, yet you show up and you give me your scraps and wonder why I'm not okay with that. We looked last week about spiritual adultery and he took this idea of divorce and marriage and this brokenness that we feel in human relationships and he extrapolated it out to the spiritual realm and said the the same pain and brokenness that happens in adultery and in broken relationships is happening in the very temple because you're bringing in foreign gods and you're committing spiritual adultery with them and then you wonder and say, you don't even love us. No, I love you. It's you who've turned your back on me. And then we walk into this passage where the Israelites have kind of just, just skirted those other, other things off to the side, and they step up, and they bring another accusation against God. They bring another accusation against God, and they say, yeah, 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 yeah. but you're not upholding your end of the bargain. You're not being just. Let's start by examining what the text says. In Malachi two seventeen. It begins with a powerful little sentence. You have wearied the Lord with your words. It's really appropriate if you're reading through Malachi, because by the time you get to this point, you kind of feel that sense of exhaustion from God. It's like, okay, here we go again. And, and the truth is, we all can, can relate to this emotion. Um, parents, parents. Maybe dads, when you get home from the end of the work day and you walk in and you're just tired because you've been answering questions all day, and what happens? Here come the kids with a 1,000 more questions. And if dads are feeling it, then moms are feeling it even more because they get about 10 times as many questions as we do. This emotion of, here we go again, I need a break. Um, Maybe a little bit of even annoyance um, uh, is what we think of when we see this emotion. If you don't have kids, you can still relate to it. There's that person at work when the phone rings or the intercom buzzes or someone knocks on the door, it's like, oh, all right, here we go again. And it's this weariness from just being badgered over and over again. Now, a lot of theologians debate whether or not God actually feels emotions like this. Um, You could read for ages and go round and round on, on the, uh, different stances on whether God could actually feel weariness or whether this was symbolic. Um, some say that because God is God, he's incapable of feeling feelings such as this and I, I think that may be true in a sense in that God probably doesn't feel the same feelings that you think of when you think of being weary in this way. Because God is in a different position. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows he can see in the past and he can see in the future. God isn't moved by emotions in the same way that we are. God is God and he is sovereign and he is in control and he is all powerful. And when he experiences emotions, he experiences them with a sort of control that maybe we don't have. Yet, I think for us to take this imagery and chunk it out the window and say that God doesn't feel these things at all would be false. As we look throughout Scripture, we see often there are emotions attributed to God. And despite the tension that we feel there, I very much believe that God feels these feelings, that there was a weariness there, not a despair, not a feeling where He lacked control. But God being wearied at the Israelites' hardness of heart and their inability to see their own sinfulness. God is not wearied by our questions, by our prayers. He is not annoyed at us when we come before him and ask big questions. He's not, he's not, a, he's not wearied or doesn't look at us with disgust when we have hard questions what wearies God is our sinfulness Isaiah forty three twenty four says this you have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices but you have burdened me with your sins you have wearied me with your iniquities You see, God isn't wearied when we come to him with genuine needs. But what we see here in this passage is Israel not coming to him with a need, but with truly a wrong attitude, a brokenness in heart and spirit that needs corrected. And it is this false and sinful attitude that I believe God is is exasperated with. Like, come on, you're my people, and you don't see it. But the people say, how have we wearied him? And the text says, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, the people were doing something that I believe we often do. They were really pointing their finger at God yet again and accusing him of operating in a way that he shouldn't operate. In other words, they were saying, maybe, maybe, You're not the God that you say that you are. Maybe you have misdefined for us what is supposed to be good and what is supposed to be evil. Maybe you've been lying about good and bad and what that is supposed to look like. Maybe you've been lying about what it means to to be blessed by following you. Maybe you're really not that good. Maybe you're really not that powerful. Maybe you're really not... A God of justice. That's essentially what they were saying in their questions. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong on a lot of different fronts. The problem is that they didn't have the capability of seeing it. Over and over and over again, the Israelites pointed their fingers at God. And accused him of problems that were their very own. I think we might do the same thing today. They were wrong in two huge ways. The first way that they were wrong is in their view of themselves. And the second way they were wrong is in asking God to do something that they really didn't want him to do. So they were wrong in their view of themselves. The truth is, they felt like they were pretty good. And so far in Malachi, we've seen that they really weren't. And they were really wrestling with evil amongst their own ranks. You know, have you ever kind of caught yourself being a little hypocritical on accident? <laughs> no, Tim says no, no. But, but well, never mind. <laughs> I'll, I'll stop there. We've all caught ourselves being hypocritical. We've yelled at a stoplight when someone didn't go and then started playing on our phone at the next one and gotten honked at. (laughs) Like, oh man, shouldn't have done that. Or being a parent, really, that's the worst. You find out all your hypocrisy when you're a parent because you tell your kids to stop doing that and then three seconds later, you're doing donuts in the parking lot. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it just, it just, it just is. And, and over and over again, we catch ourselves pointing, pointing our fingers at others and scolding them for doing wrong without realizing that we have so many of the same problems on our own. We do the same things, maybe in a different shape or a different fashion. First Corinthians ten twelve says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Church, that's what was happening here in Malachi. Because they were looking at God and saying, you're letting all these evil people get away with it. And God's like, yeah. (laughs) Have you not looked at yourself? Have you not seen the brokenness that I've already started laying out in this prophecy that I'm trying to show you? Can you not see it? Have you no self-awareness in your needs? But not only did they fail to rightly place themselves before a holy God, They asked him to do something that they really didn't want him to do. Have you ever thought that you wanted something and then after getting it realized that you did not want that thing? I'm going to show you a picture that's hanging on the wall up at the salvage yard. My brother and I, before I got in ministry, I worked at the salvage yard, a scrap metal recycling facility that we had purchased from our grandfather. So when I was a little kid, if I wanted to go work with Papaw Jack, we would go up to A1 Core and Metals, and he would assign us various jobs, and usually we were picking through some metal off to the side and sorting maybe aluminum from, from the other ferrous metals. It, it didn't matter. Um, that's beside the point, but I had written this letter to Papaw, and later we framed it. They saved it and framed it, and below it is a picture of me and Chad with him, um, you may not be able to read it on the screen, so I'll read it to you. It says, Dear Papa Jack, will you please give me and Chad a job at A1? Please call and tell me if we can. We will help you a lot. And then here is my fatal mistake. <laughs> please give us normal pay. Love, Blake and Chad. <laughs> and I, I remember writing this letter and just thinking, it's, it's time. It's time for us to get paid normal pay because I want some of those. You know, I want some real money. I'm going to buy some real stuff with this real money. We showed up. Papal said yes. You know, we were excited about that. So we showed up and just worked as hard as we'd probably ever worked for all of at least 30 minutes. And uh, and you know, when our long, uh, grueling shift was over, he gave us normal pay. And I realized that I did not want normal pay. I wanted papal pay because it was much better than normal pay. Valuable lesson learned. Sometimes we ask for things and we get them and then we regret asking for them. God's response to the Israelites was basically this. I'm going to give you what you ask for, kind of, but really I'm going to give you what you want because first I'm going to refine you and then I'm going to judge the other way around you couldn't stand in other words God steps in and says you can't stand the God of justice you're pointing your finger and saying I want this problem of evil fixed where is the God of justice and he says you're not ready for that you don't want the God of justice in fact that's not what I'm going to give you you're going to ask for it and I'm not going to give it to you first I'm going to give you a refiner's fire in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Hint, it's not you. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Back at the salvage yard, one of the things that we used to buy on occasion was lead from gun ranges. So a bullet that's fired in a gun range is stopped by a metal trap and they collect the lead that hits on the other end. Well, most bullets are made from lead but they have a steel jacket around the outside. So as the bullet travels down, it smashes into the metal, it it, um, just turns it kind of into a powdery, dusty blob of, of steel and lead just all mixed together and it falls in a bucket and they haul it off to the side. Well, Chad and I were looking at that one day and we're in the scrap metal recycling business and thought, well, that seems kind of silly. We should uh, figure out a way to get the steel out of the lead so we can sell this for a lot more money. And so we spent several months building this really cool melting pot where we would heat this, heat this large vat up with, with, uh, with gas. And, and, and as the lead began to melt, we would take, the, we would take this, the spent bullets and we would dump them in there. And what would happen? What you would see is a separating of the lead from the impurities. So the steel would actually float to the top of the lead along with all the other impurities that had gotten in there. Some of it would burn out and some of it would float to the top. And we could, we could take a, a tool on the top and we could scrape that top mess off and we could pull it to the side and we could pour an le- a ingot of pure lead. That was the process of refining, is melting and letting all of the impurities float to the top. This is what God is talking about happening here. He says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Church, the end result of refining was this. The refiner would sit there, and he would sit in front of this melted pot, and he would refine it with fire, and he would heat it up. And as all the stuff floated to the top, he would skim it off, and he would set it to the side. And it was only when he could see his reflection in that precious metal that the metal was ready ready to be used only when he could see his reflection it was at that moment after the process of refining that the righteousness the offerings and righteousness would be restored the text tells us when the offering of Judah and Jerusalem would be pleasing again to God probably in reference to their spiritual adultery that had just been talked about but it was important that the refining happened first You see, they didn't ask for that part. But if they didn't get it, they would be destroyed in the judgment. Because just like you and I, they were a mixture of good and evil. Now, there's two ways to think about this. For instance, we could think about it through a community lens. Viewing this as if God was saying There are some good people among you And there are some bad people among you And in the process of refining I'm going to sort these bad people out from among you This would remind us of the parable of the, the weeds In Matthew 13:24 through 30 <coughs> Excuse me He put another parable before them saying The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man Who sowed good seed in his field But while his men were sleeping His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat And went away So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." In other words, there's this mixture of good and evil that's growing up, and there's going to be a day when it's going to be separated, but not right now. And so oftentimes we look at this refining process, and I think that we are tempted to view it through a community lens like this. And so we look out and we say, all of you who are faking it, you better watch yourself because one of these days you're going to be refined out. And when all of you others who are really evil and have somehow gotten mixed in the bunch with all of us, when all of you have have finally been kicked out where you belong, then things are going to be okay. We have to be careful. We have to be careful, because while Israel might have heard it that way, there's another application here. Because the truth is, God works on our hearts. And while like the Israelites, we may be tempted to look at everyone else as the problem, it turned out it was them, individually, that were really wrestling with it. And I think that may be the case for us. You see, the other way of looking at this is less a tainted community and more a tainted heart. In Proverbs 17:3, we read, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests test hearts In Romans 12, 1-2, a little bit different language here, but the concept's the same. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, there's work that needs to be done on your heart, on your mind. There is a testing process. The truth is, we may look out at the community, and it may be true that there's some separating that needs to happen. There will be individuals on the day of judgment who won't find themselves in the position that they think they are in, but the reality is this. We don't need to let this passage cause us to look outwards to everyone else. This passage needs to cause us to look inward at our own hearts that are in desperate need of refining. It's the process of sanctification that we talk about so often. The process of you being, being, being brought by God to be holy and different and set apart and pure the way that you are designed to be. 1 Peter 1, three through 3-7 starts by talking about the glorious realities of our inheritance in heaven in the first few verses. And then in verse 6 it says, In this you rejoice, in these glorious realities of heaven you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, part of the refining process is us going through the trials that we so much despise. The very thing that causes us to shake our finger at God and say, hey, how, how dare you be a God who is so unjust? Those very things that he is putting us through are often the things that are designed to shape us and mold us and purify our individual hearts so that we will be refined and capable of standing on the day of judgment. Now the season of refining is temporary, that's for sure. There's a reality that's brought out in this passage that is terrifying. In verse 5 he says, Then, after the refining, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, there is a judgment coming after the refining when I am going to separate the wheat from the weeds. And it's a terrifying verse, and it's a reality that a lot of people are going to have to deal with someday, and it should not be something that we act excited about. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us God's attitude about this day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. There will be many on the day of judgment who deserve to perish, but who don't because of Jesus Christ and that's every single one of us in this room the bottom line is this God loves you Now I debated whether to include verse 6 with this week or next week And I finally decided I'm going to include it with both The ESV kind of chops it off and puts it with the next But other translations don't But I I think that it's important And I think it's designed to be read along with this passage that we just read To maybe connect this with the rest of the book In verse 6 he says this For I the Lord do not change Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed It is only because of the character of God that we are not consumed. Church, we have to remember God loves us. He started the book like that. Each defense seems to point us back to this reality. God says, it's. It's not me. It's you. I love you. Behind the scenes, I am committed to you. I'm giving the things, you the things that you don't even know that you need. I chose you. I'm, I'm watching for you. I'm looking for opportunities to refine you before I judge you. You're asking for things that you don't even, don't even understand, but know this. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you is what God is saying. He has loved us. He made a choice long ago. He set in motion a plan to redeem us. Before Jesus arrived on the scene, God set that in motion, and he sent Jesus to offer us salvation, and it's only through Jesus that we can stand before a holy God and be seen as an acceptable offering, refined by his blood. Now, there are certainly things in this passage that I find intellectually unsatisfying I'll put it that way the way it begins I can relate to as many of you can these are questions that we all have as we look at God in our limited understanding. But I think seeing God's response here helps us put our hearts in a more appropriate place. God really doesn't give a theodicy. He doesn't give a defense of himself in the face of evil and suffering because I don't think that's the most important thing that we need while we often feel that it is. It's similar to the story of Job. We listen to all these terrible things that happen to Job and we get to the end and God really doesn't give us a very good explanation he doesn't say why he doesn't say when he just says look it's going to happen I'm going to purify my people I'm going to judge those who do not fear me and I believe knowing both of those things is important his plan to refine and his plan to judge rather than give an explanation of why good things happen to bad people or why God allows evil to be so prevalent, or why so many people seemingly get ahead while doing awful things, this passage does something so much more important for us. It reminds us to be humble, and it reminds us to be grateful. Church, we should be very careful not to adopt a them-versus-us mentality, a mentality where we are the ones that are above reproach, and all of those around us are the evil ones deserving of God's judgment. We've all got our share of issues, and just like Jesus said in Matthew 7-2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He goes on to say, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Church, I think sometimes we look at the world, maybe we even look at those around us in Christianity, and and we look at them with judgmental eyes without recognizing this plank that's in our own. We've got some stuff of our own that we need to take care of. This passage is a gentle reminder. Who can endure None of us, except we have something to be grateful for, this process of refining that happens before judgment. Today, we serve a God who continues to refine, and I see in this passage very clearly the hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Savior, is is all that we need to escape this judgment and adopt this refining process. Again, I find myself in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. May we shift our attitude towards one of gratitude that God has not stepped in and exercised his judgment, when so many times over history it would have been his right and prerogative to do so. But he loves us, and he is patient, and he is waiting, and he is giving us chances, and he is desiring to run us through the refiner's fire. So the question this morning is, what are you going to choose? Where are you going to land? Are you going to allow him to refine you, or are you going to continue living on your own? God has not crushed evil because he loves us, and he's not done yet. Are you going to let him do his work? To stand outside of Jesus Christ is a scary spot, because when the day of judgment comes, there will not be a place that you will be protected. There will be a day when the fire is lit, and the elements are purified, and the dross is dragged off of the top and thrown away. And if it wasn't for Jesus, that would be every single one of us. But we've been given the choice to accept Him as our Savior. We've been given the choice to be baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection. And what happens in baptism is a powerful thing. When you're baptized, you become one of His You become one of those on which the refining process is going to happen. And if you are one of his, if you're one of those that is being refined, you can rest assured you will not stand before God on judgment day until that process is completed. But if you're not one of his, you will not sit at the refiner's feet. And his swift judgment can be expected. So you get to choose. And I hope you'll choose wisely today. Maybe that means baptism. Maybe that means further study. Or maybe that means repentance and restoration. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.